Am I excited to be here or what? I'm glad to be here. Um, by the way, I want to say thank you to Pastor JP, number one, for being a great pastor, for, for being my pastor, and, and also for having the uh, enthusiasm and the wherewithal to go take advanced leadership training skills with some great leaders out there and continually improve. And then to realize that, hey, if I'm gone all week, why don't I let someone else give the message on Sunday? So, yay, I get to be here. <laughs> Another thing, I want to say thank you to all of you who over the last six months have been asking me, how's retirement? And where, what are you doing? By the way, you might not know this, Linda retired from the school district too. Now, uh, so you want to know what I'm up to. Actually, I haven't ever announced this publicly before. Well, I did the first service, okay. <laughs> I thought I should tell you what's going on. Six months ago, when I retired, an opportunity came up in a small firm here in Poway for a leadership position. And even though it was a small company, it seemed like a big opportunity. And I said, yes. So it's like, I'm like the vice president of this company. And you might be wondering what I'm up to. Let me tell you a little bit of everything. So for example, uh, they're completely going through all their financial uh, uh, stuff. Now, I'm not a CPA, but I've been doing church budgets for 40 years. It's not my first rodeo. I can contribute something to the game. Also, they're going through building uh, renovations. They have a property and a building, and it needs some help. So, hey... I've been through lots of church building renovations. I know how to call up contractors. I know how to get things going. So this is what I've been up to. One other thing. All the workers in the company are switching to a new insurance program. I thought, I can fill out a form. I didn't realize how many forms there are. So this is what I've been up to for the last six months. And in case you're wondering what the company is, I think you've heard of it. It's called the Evan and Linda Foote family. <laughs> We've been filling out government forms, Medicare, Social Security. We've been applying for uh, state teachers retirement. We've been trying to do some building uh, our home renovations. And I'm the vice president. And Linda, well, you know what she is. Yeah. So, yes, we're having fun. Yes, we're trying to get stuff done. Yes, we're busier than ever. And it's all good. But it's a transition. We are all in transition. We are all in transition from... Um, Jackie and Cesar Garcia's new baby who's showing up sometime next week. They were here the first hour. Or to uh, the McCarty's. Pat's mother was 
recently put on hospice and really only lasts a few days. Her service is next Saturday. From one age to another, we're all in transition and we need help. Even the good transitions. See, some are terrific and some are terrifying. But all of them are challenging. You have a new baby? Hello, baby. Goodbye, sleep. <laughs> You're in your first house that you bought? Well, don't call the landlord when the garbage disposal goes out. You are the landlord. We're all in transition. Maybe you're, uh, you're in high school, and now you have to go to a different class. Every period, you have to memorize locker combinations. You got a license. You just got married. You are in transition. You're, you're being deployed for nine months. The whole family's in transition. And then you come back from deployment. You're in transition again. We're all in this together. I hear my grandkids talking. Some of them are just learning what letters are. In fact, uh, they'll put a bunch of letters on the paper and say, Grandma, read this. And she tries to sound it out. doesn't sound like any word that the little girl is her. She says, oh, well, that one's Spanish. <laughs> it's like these words are magic or something. Oh, and then the older ones are, are transitioning from printing to cursive. Whoa, there's a transition for you. And I hear them talking about it. You know, some of these are easy, like, uh, hey, I got that one. But the letter S, like, where did that come from? And then, and then they'll say, you know, a really weird one is capital Q. Transitions are tough. Whether it's learning to write cursive or just living life, we are all in them. And guess what? When Pastor JP assigned me the chapter of Acts, which is Acts chapter 8, when he gave me this, the, this assignment about a month ago, I thought, you know, Acts chapter 8 is not really my favorite chapter. There's not much going on there. It doesn't have Peter. It doesn't have Paul. It's just Philip. And, uh, but, but after reading it many times this last month, I think, this chapter is one of the key chapters of transition in the book of Acts, actually in the entire Bible. And my plan today is that we would read through the entire eighth chapter of Acts. So get your Bible out, find Acts chapter 8, or use the church Bible and turn to page 1703. And here's the deal. There's an outline in your program, too, to jot down a few notes. You know, it really doesn't take that long to read a chapter of the Bible, about four or five minutes, even if you're talking out loud. Now, we'll have to go a little bit slower because I want to explain just a few things. There's so much that could be said, but let me stop just a few times to get you oriented to what's going on in this chapter. Chapter 8 is the church going through major transition. So, um, here we go. We got to go fast. Listen quickly. Are you with me? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And by, by the way, let's put up uh, this beginning outline. So, here's the first transition. In Acts chapter 8, the church goes through three major transitions. And the first one is in... Chapter 8, the first eight verses. Okay. Now, by the way, 
Last week, chapter 7, was persecution breaking out. Uh, Stephen was killed. And the first verse of chapter 8 picks it up where it says, and Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And today we're learning about Philip. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria. You know who lives in Samaria. Samaritans. They don't belong to God's people. They shouldn't hear the gospel. But wait. Philip proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. It's no longer just Jerusalem. It's no longer just a few people gathering. They're scattering. I call this a transition of polarity, like the poles on a magnet, a transition of polarity. What do I mean? Well, do you have these little wooden trains at your house? When you get them close together, they're drawn together because it's a magnet that holds them. But if, like the kids do, you happen to get it backwards, then as you draw them close, it actually pushes the other one away. Because the polarity has been reversed. In chapter 8, God reverses the polarity. Up to this time, Jerusalem has always been the magnet that draws everyone in. Jerusalem has been the place where you had to go to worship. But now, it's no longer Jerusalem. God has changed the polarity and they're being pushed out. Now, what happened was, persecution happened. And I'm not saying God was in charge of the persecution, but God, what God was in charge of is getting the message out, and this is what motivated the people to leave town. Now, the leaders stayed in town, but everyone else went, and when, when they went, they preached. Some time ago, I got a new shop vac for the garage, and it illustrates something to me, because you might think, I thought God never changes. Well, his purpose never changes. His love never changes. But the tactics change. And I understood, the, understood this when I got my new shop back, took it out of the box, had to put pieces together, and put the wheels on the bottom, and then, and then you hook up the hose. So I hooked up the hose and turned it on. It's not picking up anything. I look at it, about blows my hat off, and then I realize, oh, there's two places to hook up the hose. One's the vacuum side, and the other is the blower side. One, the, the same motor that powerfully sucks things in, 
It's the same motor that blows thing away. In the book of Acts chapter 8, God is changing the hose from the vacuum to the blower. It's the same God, the power of God, the love of God that drew people to Jerusalem, who brought God's holy people into God's holy land, who sent Jesus to a cross in Jerusalem and a grave that he rose from. It's the same God who is now blowing the message out. Don't stay here. Get on the move. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. They're reaching Samaria now. And not only that, but more. Number two. It's another transition. And it picks up in verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in that city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, oh, this man is rightly called the great power of God. Well, they followed him because he amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, and Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great miracles he saw. Now, Simon was a witch doctor. He was a trickster. He knew how to fool people. He knew how, he knew how to work the smoke and mirrors. <laughs> but this Philip had something else going on. This is the real deal. And he's fascinated by the real power of the real God. Well, when the apostles in Jerusalem, remember the head guys are still at headquarters. When they heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria to check it out. Could this be true? Samaritans are responding to Christ. Well, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a few times in the book of Acts where what is the normal uh, procedure where the Holy Spirit and baptism and receiving Christ and all of that is all wrapped up into usually one big package. There are some places in the book of Acts where they're disassociated just to make the point that Every believer, every person should be saved by the power of forgiveness in Christ. Every person should be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is one of those cases where it's a little bit different just to call attention to the importance that every person should be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now I need to find my place where I was. Um, so someone call out. What verse was that? Okay. When Peter and John placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given on at the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Whoa, I want to buy this trick. 
He said, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, fellow, you're on the wrong page. This is not how grace works. And Peter lays into him. Peter answered, may you and your money perish with you. You can take your money and go to jump in a lake, as my mother would say, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Well, he really laid into him. And in my opinion, Simon repented and got on the right page. But that's not really the focus of what's going on here. They simply say, Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And after that, now catch this, after that, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. You know, the guys who thought that it's only Jews who should be saved? But look what they're doing on the way. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in Samaritan villages. This is a transition of power. A transition of power. It's not just for the few in Jerusalem. The power of the Holy Spirit is for every believer. So they can go out and spread the gospel in the power of the Spirit. It's no longer headquartered in Jerusalem. Now, everyone has the Spirit. And there's one more transition now as we finish up the chapter. So we have Samaritans on board. Now we're going to another continent gospel is on the move. And this, we pick it up in verse 26. Again, there's a great story. I wish I had time to explain all, but let's just, uh, let's just watch Philip what happens next. As in verse 26, we read, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, to the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And I imagine Philip might say, oh man, I don't like desert roads. They're so hot and dry and deserted. I don't want to go there. Linda and I were making a trip to Phoenix. We got stopped on the freeway and we're, there was that fire up ahead. We were there for four hours looking out at the desert. That's not fun. But what Philip did was this. Angel of the Lord said, get down on that desert road. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in the charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. Maybe your Bible says Candace. Some people think it's a proper name. Some think it's an office, but whatever. She's important, and he works for her. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, he wasn't a full Jewish convert. He was just interested in the Jewish system. And evidently, he's a rich guy because while he was there, he bought a handwritten Isaiah scroll. Probably cost a couple thousand shekels, I'm guessing. Well, anyway, um, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. Now, if you're like me, you think of a chariot as one horse, one guy with the reins, and standing in a kind of bucket about the size of a card table. That's the wrong picture. Think more like 
a limousine with the convertible top down driven by a chauffeur and moving slowly along a motorcade because this guy's sitting in the back seat and he's reading. Someone else is doing the driving. And uh, of course, it is drawn by horses, so uh, it's an easy thing for Philip to just jog up there. But I, I'm wondering, when uh, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Oh, man, I don't want to have anything to do with that limousine. You know, this guy probably has bodyguards. He's someone important. Well, I don't want to bother him. That's what I would say. But Philip did it. And, of course, God's in control of this. So Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Hey, do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? This is a wide open door. How can I, unless someone explains to me? So he invited Philip to sit in the back seat of the limousine with him. All right, I'm adding that in. And this uh, is what the passage of scripture that he was reading. Isaiah 53. We've already heard it today. Now, by the way, if you know the story of Jesus, you know exactly what Isaiah is prophesying. But if you haven't heard the story of Jesus, it's confusing. He was led, led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Is himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. You know, you could take any random passage in the Bible and in one way or another, it points to Jesus because it's all about him. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, hey, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And so he gave orders to stop the chariot. That's how we know there are other people there. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Now, I don't know if this was a miraculous disappearance or if the Spirit just whispered in Philip's ears, okay, you're done with this guy. I got another assignment for you. But actually, Philip goes on and re um, locates in another town, which becomes an important part of the story later on in the book of Acts. We're just told this. Philip appeared at Azotas and then traveled about preaching the gospel in all of the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, Caesarea, you got to get this. The gospel is now going to a new continent, Africa, and also to Caesarea, which is the Roman capital of the Holy Land. I thought Jerusalem was the capital. Well, it is if you're a Jew, but the Romans considered Caesarea to be the capital. That's why they named it after Caesar. So the gospel is spreading to different continents and to the heart of the political system. That's what Acts chapter 8 is all about. A great transition of polarity and power and of people. It's not just for Jewish people. It's for people of all races and all places. 
the power of God. Now, this is a huge transition. And you got to appreciate what's happening in Acts chapter 8. But I want you to stop to think about what's happening in your life and your world. Because we're all in transition. And let, let me just say this. In fact, it's on your outline. Jot this down. We're all under transition. Some of them, some of these transitions are terrific. Yay, we bought a new house. Some of them are terrifying. It's right here on the screen. Some of them will be terrific and some of them will be terrifying. But if you let God take charge, what is he up to? He's going to take you places you can't imagine. You're going to thrive. Some are terrific. Some are terrifying. But if you let God take charge, you're going to thrive. And that's where your faith needs to be today. You know, in this chapter, here's what I want to wrap up with. Let's see if we can bring it on home to you, okay? Here are three powerful insights to get you through tough transitions. Now, maybe you're in one right now. If not, you will be sometime soon. And because we all are, all right? So, number one. Why is God taking me through tough times? You know, often we pray, God, get me out of this mess. It's too hard. It's too tough. But whoa, 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 wait. What did we see in this chapter? Why is God taking me through, through tough times? Maybe it's because he wants to push you to new places. Like a like a blower that'll scatter the winds, the, the leaves in the wind. So he wants his people, out. maybe he's trying to take you to a new place. Like a friend that I've known for many years, he lost his job early on. You know why he lost it? Because people in the company were lying about him. And the head of the company even knew that some of it was lies, but they fired him anyway. Now, what do you do? Well, you could hire a lawyer. You could go fight this. But he believed in this principle. When I'm going through tough times, maybe God is leading me somewhere. In fact, he realized, you know, this job I've had is not really adequate for my family. So he started praying that God would give him a job that would allow him to put his kids through college, allow for his wife not to have to work if she didn't want to, and allow them to have a big enough home to host people for faith events in their home. He couldn't find that job anywhere. So he started his own business. Fast forward a couple decades. God has blessed him by pushing him out of his comfort zone into a new place. His kids have college degrees and graduate degrees. His wife is known as the greatest volunteer in their town. And they have a beautiful home that I've enjoyed going there myself for faith meetings and other uh, parties. Can you believe that when you are going through a tough time, maybe God is pushing you beyond what you've imagined before. Number two, oh, we might say this. Why is God dragging me down a desert road? I hate desert roads. They're so hot and dry. Well, maybe he wants to open up new opportunities. 
Maybe there's an important Ethiopian official that he wants you to meet. Well, we're on a recent mission trip. Uh, the missionary, the, the, the church they had started there didn't have a building yet. And they were trying to uh, find a place where they could worship. Well, a woman who had a nice house in the town, uh, she's a churchgoer, her husband's not, but she is, she said, you know, you guys could, you guys could use my house for meeting. And so the missionary said, I want, to t- I want to take you guys to see this house. It's really awesome, you know, it's so exciting what God's doing. So, he said, and, and she said, we could take a little tour of this, of this house. So we pulled up alongside, it's all blocked off by a wall. You can't really see inside, although I could see an upper balcony on the second story. In fact, I thought I saw a guy wearing a police uniform. Whatever. So we got out, the woman of the house, she's the churchgoer, she, she came out and said, I don't know, they're saying something in Spanish, and it's like, you know what, we can't go in after all. Something's going on. Something's going on, they're embarrassed about it or something. And in fact, they said, you know, could we come over here? We want to pray for this woman. And I didn't even know what the situation was, and a bunch of them are praying in Spanish, and I'm doing my best in English to ask God to bless this place where the church is going to meet and all that. And, and then after the prayer, something kind of changed. I don't know what it was, but the woman who said, uh, I don't want you to come in, said, you know what? Come on in. Meet my husband. Come on in. They open up the gate. Here's this spacious courtyard we can imagine. Oh, wow, they're going to have worship services here. They took us up to that second floor and uh, plenty of room for Bible studies and, and seminars and all of that. Oh, and we met the husband. He's a nice guy. And also, we met the cop that was there. I wasn't sure why, but, you know, after about a half hour, we said goodbye with hugs and handshakes, high-five the cop, and uh, it wasn't until later I found out what was going on. So here's the story. The husband, the guy who's not the churchgoer, was doing a favor for a friend who had a bunch of guests coming out from out of the country, uh, and they had a bunch of luggage. He didn't have enough room to carry all the luggage, so... The man of the house, the guy who's not the churchgoer, hey, I'll help you. So he just helped carry the luggage in his vehicle. Well, uh, the policia saw this car with all the luggage. They pulled him over, searched through all the suitcases, and found a stash of marijuana in one of them. One of the guys from another country had brought this in. Immediately, the man of the house is put into jail. Now, we heard that being in jail in that country is not a happy place. A couple days later, the judge says, your sentence is three years in prison. Now, it just so happened they had enough money to buy down the sentence to three years house arrest. And that's what was going on. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Can you imagine, you cannot leave your house for three years. Oh, my goodness. And then I thought, oh, my godness. The guy who doesn't go to church, the church is coming to him. He's going to be at every worship service. 
He's going to be at every seminar. He's going to be at every Bible study. Is God up to something or what? <laughs> and when you are stuck in your life, and you think, why does God send me in the desert? I'm all alone for three years. He's up to something. Trust him. Number three. We got to finish this. Here we go. Why does God cram me next to creepy people? Like some sorcerers and Ethiopians. You know, uh, I know a family that has a lovely home. They hate living there. It's not because of their home, it's the neighbor. He's a creep. Maybe you work with creepy people. Maybe there's some in your family. Why does God cram me next to these creepy people? Whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe it's because he wants you to understand that he has the power to change even the most unlikely. He can do it. He changes Samaritans. He changes Ethiopians. He changes crazy Romans in Caesarea. And he can handle your creepy neighbor. By the way, I'm not referring to my house. We have awesome neighbors. Just want to set the record straight. But here's where I wanted to read this book, a part of it, by Bob Goff. Bob Goff is a lawyer. He lives locally in San Diego. He has a lot of contacts around the world. He's been in Uganda. In fact, when he was in Uganda, he found out there are witch doctors in Uganda who, I want to say this carefully, who abduct children in order to use them for mutilation and sacrifice just so they can cast spells. And they get, the witch doctors get a lot of money for doing this. But Bob Goff, the lawyer, says someone should do something. Why don't you arrest those guys and throw them in jail? Well, there's two problems. Number one, everyone fears the witch doctors including law enforcement and the judiciary system. So they can't bring them to trial. And even if they could, here's the other problem. The victims don't survive. They can't testify. All right, that's the setup for one of the last chapters of his book. Kabi, K-A-B-I. Kabi was the head of all the witch doctors in his region of northern Uganda. He was my age, had no hair on his head, no stubble on his face, and no smile. It was like all the hate in his life had congregated in his face. It was worn and stern, and his bloodshot eyes had a yellowish hue. Kabi was the most evil person I've ever met. Why does God put us up against creepy people? An eight-year-old boy, who we'll call Charlie, was walking home from school when Kabi abducted him, Kabi took Charlie into the bush, cut off some of his parts, and left him for dead. But Charlie didn't die. Kabi was arrested a short time later, and for the first time in Uganda's history, we had one of the leaders of the witch doctors and an eight-year-old victim who was alive. So it went to trial. There's a lot of stories about the trial, but let me just get to the end. The, in fact, Charlie had to testify against this guy who had tried to kill him. And he was a brave little guy in front of him. He was like David and Goliath, you know. 
All right. The trial took about a week to finish, and a short time later, we received the judge's guilty verdict. In Uganda, once a judge signs the verdict, the custom is to take the pen and break it and throw it off the table. And then the judge says with an unmatched finality, what's been done today will never be undone. And when the judge signed Cobby's order and said those words, it meant he would be in the prison for the rest of his life. The word of Cobby's conviction went out to 41 million people and the courage of a four-foot-tall boy had changed the history of an entire nation. We've done it! The very first witch doctor conviction in Uganda's history. I was pleased with the outcome of the trial. Justice had been served, and it paved the way for a more courageous stance for these types of crimes against children. But then, something happened I didn't expect. I started wondering about Kabi. Every fiber of my being wanted him to rot in that jail. I was okay with that. But my heart felt dark when I thought about Kabi. I, I, I felt far from God, and I didn't like that. You know, when Jesus was talking to his friends one day, he pulled them together, and he said something that really surprised them, I bet. He didn't say they needed to use bigger words in their prayers or, or to go to church more or not to chew tobacco or dance. What he did say was, you must love your enemies. Kabi was my enemy. And I had to do something about it, he said. Well, the story goes on, but... Uh, He said this, the minute Cobby attacked Charlie, he became my enemy. He wasn't a little evil. He was pure evil. It's easy to talk a good game about loving your enemies until you have one. But I realized if I wanted big things to happen in my life, I would need to take bigger steps. So I visited Cobby in prison. I wish I could read it all. There's two big surprises at the end of this book. The first one is, Bob Goff returns to Uganda, visits Kabi in prison, and Kabi puts his faith in Christ and starts evangelizing the other prisoners. Can God change even the most unlikely people or what? The second, even more amazing surprise at the end We'll be waiting for you when you get your own book and read it. <laughs> I'll just say it's about Charlie. Oh, by the way, I have two extra copies right here. They're 12 bucks on Amazon. First two people up front with 12 bucks can take these home. Read the story for yourself. I'm just saying, look, we're all in transition. But when you have these powerful insights, it changes everything. Can I tell you one last story? I have a friend who's quite a guy. He was walking down the street alone one day, and a guy jumps out with a knife and says, give me your money. By the way, what would you do? Well, my friend's quite a guy. Did I say that? 
He said, whoa, 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 calm down. Take it easy. Let me get my wallet. Pulls out his wallet. Opens it up. Look, I have $30. He gives the guy the $30. The guy grabs it. He puts his wallet back, and then he does something unusual. He reaches down and pulls up his shirt to reveal the concealed weapon that he's licensed to carry. And he pulls the gun out of the holster just so the thief can get a good look at it and so that he could make a point. When you threatened me with your knife, I could have given you a bullet. But instead, I'm giving you my $30 and a new chance to change your life. I would just suggest the next time you pull your knife, you better think twice. I love that story. Isn't it great? But I'm telling it for this reason. Watch me. When the power that is with you is greater than the power that's against you, it changes everything. And whatever transition you're in, God is with you. You say, but wait, you don't understand what I'm facing. I could die. And I'd say, well, someday you're going to die. But hey, that's just the greatest transition of all. You're going to be in heaven. No more problems, no more tears, no more pain. And you know it's true because of the power that's with you. And I'm not talking about a concealed weapon under your shirt. I'm talking about the word of God that's hidden in your heart. <laughs> that's what tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you can be with me. Put your faith in it. We're all in a transition. And someday it'll be the grand transition of all, the greatest of all. If you love Jesus, we are so there. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us in your word and in the stories around us and in our life what you can do when we trust you with all our heart. Amen.